Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today's sermon is the Gospel reading, Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. It'll take us a little bit to get to that actual text, so bear with me for just a few minutes as we get to it. Um, I want to start with a question. Who is the greatest philosopher who ever lived? Um, And you're not allowed to answer Jesus. That's not fair. Who's the greatest philosopher that ever lived? Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. Nobody likes you, whoever said Aristotle. (laughs) You know what uh, Luther said? Luther had a funny answer to this question. Martin Luther said that the greatest philosopher that ever lived was Adam. Why? Well, Luther's argument was this. Adam knew stuff. It's easy, right? Adam knew not only the natural world, right? He knew the natural world really well. He was in charge of it. He was taking care of it. He was tending to it in like a perfect way. But he didn't know just the natural world. He knew the animal world too, but not just the animal world. I mean, if you think about it, he knew the animal world so well that as he observed the animals, as God brought them to him and gave them like names that were appropriate to them, this is how well he knew the animal world. But it's not just the natural world, not just the animal world. Adam knew God. He walked with God. He talked with God. And what did they talk about? Well, I don't think that they talked about the weather, probably, right? Whatever it was they talked about, Here's the cool part. Adam understood it. Because his mind was unaffected by sin yet. And that kind of insight, that kind of knowledge, especially of God, is what humanity was created for. In fact, the only knowledge that was out of reach for Adam was what? The knowledge of evil. The knowledge of evil. He could not know wickedness. He could not know shame. He could not know guilt. He could not know death. What Satan dangles in front of Adam and Eve when he comes to tempt them is exactly that. Genesis 3, 5, Satan comes and he says, he promises, if you disobey God, quote, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when it talks about how Eve looked at the the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, she saw that the fruit was beautiful and to be desired to make one wise. She wanted knowledge. And the sin of humanity by, by pursuing that forbidden knowledge, the sin of humanity had several results. Yes, on the one hand, their eyes were opened to the darkness that is evil. But that had the paradoxical effect of actually dimming their vision of everything else. Humanity can no longer see virtually anything clearly. We don't see ourselves clearly. We don't see each other clearly. But most significantly, we do not see God. We do not know God clearly. And I'm using the word dimmed here, I'm being careful, because it's common to say that humanity is blinded to the truth, but dimmed is better than blind in this particular context, because the fall doesn't completely destroy all of our knowledge. 
uh, even all of our knowledge of God. Because that's not how the fall generally works. If you think about it, you think about, like, for instance, the curse that God lays on Adam. Adam's work, God says, will be marked by pain and futility. And that's absolutely true. But obviously it's not absolute and constant pain. And it's not total futility. Otherwise, nobody would ever try anything, ever. Just so, our knowledge of God is not lost entirely. But instead is confused and fragmented. I say not lost because every people's Every culture has some, retains some knowledge, keeps some worship of God. Heck, even atheists and agnostics pray. Psychology Today had this really interesting article. It said there's like 84% of people in the world who belong to an organized religion. 84%, right? But even those who don't, half of them say, half of them, the ones who say they have no religion at all, pray once a month or more. So much so that a, uh, a certain Romanian uh, philosopher of religion, uh, whose name, and I'm probably going to butcher this poor guy's name, Mercia Eliad, he was a professor at the University of Chicago. He, he said that what we should do is we should not call humanity homo sapien. We should call humanity homo religiosus. Because we all end up worshiping somebody or something. And Paul makes this point real explicitly in Romans chapter 1. So this is Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 19. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to humanity, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And I want you to notice what he says specifically. He says that creation itself testifies to God's divine nature, to his existence, and to his power. It's often said, or it used to be said, I don't know if it's said so much anymore, that as science progresses, religion retreats. But that's not actually what we find, especially among practicing or working scientists. One MD I know said that um, when she went to medical school, um, the intricacies of the human body caused her more awe at God's power and his creative ability, not less. Stephen Meyer uh, wrote a really cool book called The Return of the God Hypothesis. And in, in one section of it, he's talking about how he runs into these, especially astronomers, who their science actually causes them to believe in God as opposed to disbelieve. So I'm going to read you a little passage from the Return of the God Hypothesis. He's talking about Caltech astronomer Alan Sandage. Sandage was rightly respected, widely respected rather, as one of the great observational astronomers of the 20th century. He was also well known as an agnostic with a materialist philosophy of science. During Sandage's talk, however, he not only described the astronomical evidence for the beginning of the universe, he shocked many of his colleagues by announcing a recent religious conversion and then explaining how the scientific evidence had contributed to the profound change in his worldview. This is Meyer talking now. I recall his looking intently at the audience and gravely saying, quote, here is evidence for what can only be described as a supernatural event. 
There is no way this could have been predicted within the realm of physics as we know it, end quote. Meyer goes on. Sandage described his own internal struggle to reconcile his commitment to, reduction, to a reductionist and materialistic philosophy of science with his growing conviction that something beyond the strictly material must have played a role in bringing the universe into existence. He explained that although he did not think that scientific evidence could prove God's existence, he did think that new discoveries in cosmology and physics had lent unexpected credibility and support to theistic belief. This is Sandage, quote, I now have to go from a stance as a complete materialistic rational scientist and say that this supernatural event, to me, gives at least some credence to my belief that there is some design in the universe. I cannot, with certainty, say that. What now do I do? I'm convinced that there is some order in the universe. I think all scientists at the deepest level are so startled by what they see in the miraculousness of the interconnection of the things of their field that they, that they at least have wondered, why is it this way? And Meyer has a bunch of stories like this. So if we're talking about our knowledge of God, we're talking about how creation reveals his power that's something we know. But even as Paul asserts that in Romans 1, he says something else too. He says in Ephesians 4 that people after the fall are, quote, darkened in their understanding. And twice he says that we are actually ignorant of God because that's the effect of the fall. On the one hand, we know he exists. We know he's powerful. On the other hand, our knowledge is dimmed and confused and fragmented. And those are the words we're going to use for this. So that, yes, all civilizations have religion, but it ends up getting muddled. And sometimes only little bits of the truth come through. So, for example, yes, many, many people in humanity have recognized that there is something to a dying, rising again God. But then we go and we say it's like the corn, the corn God. Or another example, yes, we recognize that some blood has to be shed in order to forgive everything that we've done wrong. But then we start sacrificing slaves in order to get that forgiveness, to make ourselves right with God. And out of this confused mess, God calls the man Abraham. And it's significant that God calls him out of one of these confused civilizations. As far as we can tell from Abraham and his family's names, his family is worshiping some sort of a fertility moon goddess when God calls him. And when he separates from that civilization, God begins talking to Abraham as a friend. And, and I love that, that, that little detail we get in Genesis. God is communicating and teaching Abraham. And what is he teaching him? He's teaching him... God's will. He's teaching him to understand what we call good. What is good? What pleases God? What God wants from humanity? At one point, God is having this conversation, and he says this. This is Genesis 18, verse 19. He says, I have chosen Abraham that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. 
to keep the way of the Lord, to, to do what God believes is good, what is good, to do righteousness and justice. And, and, and Abraham's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, of course, then go on to become the people that we call Israel. And God has a special relationship with Israel. That's what the Old Testament is. God speaks to Israel in a way he doesn't speak to anybody else, and he tells Israel what is good and what is evil. And he speaks through prophets. And today, for obvious reasons, I'm going to focus on Moses and Elijah. And if you stop and think about this for just a minute, you think about the story of Moses, right? God calls Moses, right? Moses is a shepherd. His, as far as we can tell, his father-in-law is some sort of a pagan. He's out in the wilderness. God calls him and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to get my people who are enslaved in Egypt. I want you to bring them out of Egypt. Moses goes. He brings them out of Egypt. He brings them into the wilderness. And God brings Moses and Israel to Sinai. And that's where God meets Moses. And while he's on Sinai, while, while Moses is on Mount Sinai with God, God tells Moses what his job is. It's Moses' job to lead Israel into the promised land. But then God says this to him. Don't worry. Don't worry, Moses. I know you by name. And there's a, a, a trend you notice. It's like he's saying, don't worry, I'll take care of you. I'll be a friend to you like I was to Abraham. And Moses, as he's, as he's receiving all these, uh, in case you don't remember, uh, the second half of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all these things that explain to Israel what God is like, Moses makes two requests of God. First, in Exodus thirty-three thirteen, Moses says this to God. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. This is what he's asking for. He's asking God to show him God's ways, what is good, so that Moses and Israel can do what is good and therefore find favor in God's sight. And God says... Yeah, sure. Actually, let me clear up some confusion here. And he gives him like the entire book of Leviticus. He says, I don't want you to sacrifice your children in order to get rain. I don't like that because I am the God of life, not the God of death. In fact, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. He says things like, I don't want you to sell your daughters into sex slavery, which was a super common practice in the ancient world. In fact, what I want is for you guys to get married and to stay married because this pleases me and is good. He says things like, I don't want you to oppress and take advantage of the poor. The poor are especially dear to me. And if you take care of the widow, and if you take care of the orphan, if you take care of the poor, then you're actually lending to me, and I guarantee you I will repay you with interest. That's one of the Proverbs, right? God clarifies. You can't worship a corn god or a moon goddess or a rain god. They're not real. Instead, worship, and God says, worship me. Love me alone with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is what God reveals to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
his will. So everybody knows his power, and God starts to reveal his will to Israel. But remember, before we get too far away from it, you remember I said that Moses had two requests of God when God had him up on Mount Sinai. The first was to teach him his ways, but Moses knows there's still something missing. And what's missing is that thing that humanity lost in the garden. We're missing knowledge of God himself. So the second thing that Moses asks for is in Exodus 33, 18. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. But God said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And we're going to come back to this in just a minute, but, but it's really interesting to see. We want knowledge of God. We have power, and now he's revealing to Israel his will, but we still don't get who he is. Okay, so what does Israel do with this knowledge of God that God is just giving them? Sometimes they follow it. Yay! But not mostly. If Moses is the high point, and, and you can make this case, Moses is the, the zenith of Israel's relationship with God. Um, Elijah is the nadir. <laughs> Elijah is the low point. Elijah the prophet um, is a prophet... Um, I don't know, 800 years later. And during this era of Israel's history, even though they know what is good and what God wants, they just don't do it. A king comes to power in Israel and his name is Ahab. And this is what uh, the chronicler writes about Ahab. This is 1 Kings 16. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and he served Baal, and he worshipped Baal, and he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal and he built, that he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So much so that at one point in Elijah's ministry, uh, Ahab's wife Jezebel threatens to kill Elijah, and Elijah just has to literally run for his life. And in desperation, he travels 40 days, and he gets to Mount Sinai. And he finds a cave. And God's word comes to him while he's in that cave. And God says to Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? This is Elijah's response, 1 Kings 19, verse 10. And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God responds, and his response is incredibly kind to Elijah. God says two things. First, don't worry. I'm still in control of this situation. You feel alone, 
but I have protected and kept 7,000 faithful people who are still following my ways. This is verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed Baal. He tells Elijah he's going to do something else. He's going to send Elijah to reestablish Israel's relationship with God. He's going to have him anoint two new kings and a new prophet in order to call the people back to following God's ways. And it's just such a kind response to Elijah. But again, I want to point something out. There's still something missing. Elijah is not permitted to see God face to face. He's standing there on Mount Sinai, and this is what happens. God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. Why? Because he didn't want to see God. He knows, like God had said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. So here's where we are. First, everyone has access to a knowledge of God's existence and his power. Second, Israel is given additional revelation. God clarifies what is good and what is his will. But still our knowledge is fragmentary and incomplete. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that many times, that many ways, it's, it's here and there, and it's this way and that way, and it's all fragmented. You know, nobody gets the whole picture. Um, my favorite archbishop with a TV show and a chalkboard. Um, I have a second favorite archbishop with a TV show and a chalkboard. But my first favorite... Uh, Archbishop with a TV show and a chalkboard is named uh, Fulton Sheen. And Fulton Sheen put it this way. And, and I, I think this is important. God thinks. He has a thought. But God's thought is not like ours. It is not multiple. I'm going to pause there and just explain for just a minute. In other words, after the fall, humanity's knowledge of God is fragmented, but God himself is not fragmented. There's this important classic Christian teaching that says God is, and we use the word simple. And what we mean by the word simple is he does not have parts. He is not fragmented or fragmentable. Sheen goes on, he says, God does not think one thought or one word one minute and then another in the next. Thoughts are not born to die and do not die to be reborn in the mind of God. All is present to him at once. In him there is only one word. He has no need of another. God has one idea, one word, and that idea is the totality of all truth. That thought, that word is infinite and equal to himself. A word that tells what God is. And that word is personal. As living as himself, a divine person. God has the idea, an idea of himself and this idea is so deep and so reflective of his nature as to be a person, his son. End quote. 
Or if you want to go back to Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews goes on from what I said earlier. He says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And now we're finally ready to get to the gospel reading because that's what Peter and James and John are about to discover. And um, if you want to go there, we're going to go through it real quick. But what's interesting is as we get to Matthew chapter 17, immediately before this, Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus commends him. Jesus says, good job, Peter. You've done exactly, you've understood exactly what I want you to understand. And then Jesus begins to reveal what the Messiah's mission is, what he is going to do. So this is, just before we get to Matthew 17, this is Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, just before our story, he tells Peter and the disciples, I'm going to die. And they have a real hard time with this. This is Peter's response. Peter says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus, the Messiah, is supposed to be saving them. And here he says he's going to die. So Jesus does something interesting. He gives Peter and James and John a preview of the resurrection. And not just the resurrection, but also the glory that will permeate his resurrected body. So let's begin. Chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And the only thing I want to say about this verse is that in Jewish law, and, and I think in most legal systems, um, in order to establish something, one witness is not sufficient. You need two or even better, three witnesses to establish something. So Jesus brings along with him three witnesses. Verse 2. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And for the first time since the fall, humanity actually gets to see God's glory. Remember when Moses asked, God's answer was not just no. God answered, you cannot see my face and live. And because there's no difference between seeing God's glory and seeing his face, in this moment, on this mountain, what we're watching happen is for just a brief moment, the veil that shielded Moses and shielded Elijah from seeing God's face is lifted so that humanity can see the face of God. And it's Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying just like that this moment in transfiguration is akin to the momentousness of when God said, let there be light. The first time that light shone in our universe, that's what it's like for humanity to be up on that hill to see Jesus this way. We are being given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A peak, a 
peek at that ultimate knowledge that we lost. Not just God's power, not just his will, but knowledge of God himself. Because here, Jesus' divinity shines through his humanity without reducing his humanity at all. And we, who since the fall have had a fractured and confused knowledge of God, we glimpse something. Peter in Ephesians, or Paul in Ephesians says, what was brought to light is, quote, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Because that's like the most beautiful sentence I've ever read. I'm going to read it again because it's fun. What is brought to light is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. What's that plan? What's that mystery? What is the thing that has been hidden for ages in God? It's the fact that God found the fracturing of the fall so more intolerable than even humanity did. That he had a plan to fix that fracturing by himself becoming a man in order to reveal the final thing that he wants to reveal to humanity. That he wants humanity to know about him. That he wants to reveal his true nature, his true heart. All mankind knows power. Israel knows his will. Peter and James and John learn about his love. A love so profound and self-sacrificing that it will take him to the cross to die so that he can heal a very different kind of fraction that we experience all the time. The fracture of death. So that we don't have to have our bodies torn from our souls and that be a permanent thing. So we don't have to live in a, in a constant fear of the dissolution of our bodies into our, its constituent elements. Which is exactly why Moses and Elijah appear. Look at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. Because Jesus had said, I am not the God of the dead, but I am the God of the living. And here with three, with three witnesses, Jesus gives proof of life after death. 1,480 years after Moses died, 900 years after Elijah was not walking on earth anymore, and yet here they are, alive and well. And, just as kind of a funny aside, Jesus honoring their request to see him on a mountain. And this happens to John when he's a young man. When he's older, he has another vision. Um, we call it the book of Revelation. And in that vision, he sees a future moment when Jesus returns in his glory and he raises all who believe in him. He takes them to the top of another mountain, Mount Zion. And there he, we, we all, you and I, get to look at him with an unveiled face. And it's funny because it's described as an army. All of us are described as an army. And uh, you know what we end up doing? Bursting into song. We start singing all the time. And you and I will be there. And Peter said, Peter's overcome, verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Peter's right, it's good that they're there, but they're wrong. It's wrong of him to want to stay there, to want to keep Jesus there. Why? Because John's vision of all of us on that mountain is in the future. 
It hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't redeemed them yet. Jesus hasn't died yet. Jesus hasn't completed his mission yet, which is why he tells them in verse 9, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. All right, let's finish this up. Last, last verses. Let's read verses 5 through 8 real quick. He was still speaking. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is what the author of Hebrews said at the, what I quoted about half a sentence earlier. Long ago in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our, pro- our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son because Jesus is greater than any prophet. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. And God tells all of humanity, listen to Jesus. He is the key of all reality. He is the missing piece of the puzzle that is necessary to have in order to know God. I thought it was funny that in the um, baptismal service, the thing that we're asking the sponsors to do is to teach that kid the knowledge of God, the fear of God. And by the way, I think this is kind of a, uh, one, of the, one of the more precious of the Lutheran insights. We know that you can have hundreds of Bible verses memorized, but unless you are reading your Bible through the lens of Jesus, unless you understand the cross to be the key to everything, you cannot understand what is true or good or right, who God is or what ultimate reality is all about. So this is the last thing I'll say to you. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to self-proclaimed wise men. Certainly don't listen to your own heart. Instead, like Peter and James and John, lift up your eyes. See Jesus only and listen to him. Amen. Amen. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.